what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Tech episodes of this podcast are now supported by Furos.io. That is F-U-R-O-S.io. Furos is a Denver cloud consulting firm. And chances are, if there's a big building in downtown Denver with their logo on the outside of it, Furos has got people in there doing some very interesting work that has an impact on those businesses. They focus on AWS, cloud consulting, and Their mantra is simple, hire the best people they can, pay them really well, and let them work on challenging, interesting projects that have impacts on the business. So if you are struggling with the cloud, and I know that's a really overused word in the tech space, and projects aren't getting done, and you need some help, look them up, furos.io, that is F-U-R-O-S dot I-O. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thanks again to everybody that's uh, listening and providing feedback. Really appreciate it. Uh, My guest today is an author and seven-time CEO, Mark Settle, who has a book, Truth from the Trenches, A Practical Guide to the Art of IT Management. And Mark, thanks for making the time. It's great to finally talk to you. Super. I'm looking forward to it. So uh, people that have written books, uh, I ask about where the story came from, where the the idea for the book came from. And then I'm always fascinated by the process because I know it's probably a grind, but how did you come up with the idea and how did you make it through actually getting this book uh, out and on the shelves? So I'm sure everybody has their own unique process, but uh, this book started in a manila folder that I start that I started to keep almost like a, a professional diary. And the title of the folder was you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> and, and it would, the, the folder was like a form of therapy for me because, um, you know, so many things go wrong in it <laughs> that ultimately come back to human error, poor planning, or, you know, something that in hindsight, 2020 hindsight, was perfectly predictable, you know, just perfectly predictable that this was going to result in something bad. And uh, so I, I, I had kept this file for quite a while, actually. And I was between jobs. This was back in late 2015. And I got the folder out. And I kind of had this idea of having a, writing a book. It was on my bucket list. I thought, well, you know, maybe towards the end of my career, I'll actually get these thoughts down on paper. But I had some time at my disposal. And I outlined the, the book over the month of December and I sat down in January and I'd done a lot of writing, you know, various forms of blogging. And, you know, I, I did thesis work when I was in school and et cetera, but um, I'd never written a book before. And I actually produced a 50,000 word manuscript in four weeks in January of, I guess it would have been 2016. And uh, so I think there was a book in me that was waiting to come out. And okay. part of the process was, you know, not to, not to get the labor, the first draft. So my goal was to just kind of crash through and use my outline and get a, a draft in hand and then go back and polish it over time. And so I, you know, I think my motivation was very self-centered. I mean, it was a form of personal therapy for me. And, and I think also kind of a sense of trying to help other people avoid 
committing the sins of the past over and over again. Because again, sometimes in IT, it's like watching the movie Groundhog Day. I mean, it's like, did we shoot ourselves in the foot the same way again? Like, again, we did it. Like, you would think by now we would know. But um, yeah, unfortunately, because you don't study, you know, IT leadership in school, it's an experiential kind of learning process. And like every generation of leaders has to come up and unfortunately either witness or, you know, make some of the same mistakes over and over again. So anyway, that was the motivation for the book. And that's, that was sort of the process. So in that Manila folder, Mark, was there one um, can't make this stuff up moment that stands out above all the rest that <laughs> when you're, when you're at a, a conference or a happy hour and people start trading war stories, one that is just sort of like you're <laughs> the one that nobody believes. Right. Um, there's more than one, let's put it that way, but I can, <laughs> I can illustrate one for you. So I was, this is a, a job I had, gee, now it would have been over 10 years ago. And uh, we had an on-premise data center. Uh, we had this big Cisco primary network switch in the data center. We had warehouses in different parts of the country and we had sales offices and, you know, we, it was very much a traditional kind of a shop and uh, the switch went down and we lost the data center. So kind of like the business came to a halt because of this, this phenomenon. And so the first thing I found out was we had lost the switch because we had done a software update on the switch. This was like during prime business hours, like on a Thursday, I think it was. And so I got the VPN infrastructure into my office and I said, you know, I'm not the most technical guy in the world, but I mean, I thought we don't do this kind of stuff during the day, right? I mean, this is like a weekend <laughs> thing. Whoever heard of like updating software on the primary switch in the data center during the middle of the day? He said, oh yeah, yeah, no, that is, that's our policy is to do it on the weekend. But the guy that knows how to do this, his son is uh, going to Bamis for this weekend. And so he's trying to get it taken care of on Thursday so he wouldn't have to come in on the weekend, right? And so I just, you know, <laughs> you know, you can't make this kind of stuff up. And I'll tell you the other funny thing about that story is, you know, a lot of times um, the people that make those kind of mistakes, they turn out to be some of the best people that you have. And you realize that you've been writing and, and pushing some of these people really hard. I mean, they're, they're, they're uber responsible. You know, they seek out responsibility. They never say no. And then, you know, it's hard to almost fault them because of all the other good stuff that they do. So you kind of create this dilemma for yourself. You can't really look at the rest of the staff and say, oh, we're just going to let this pass because, you know, there shouldn't be any penalty for this. But on the other hand, you know, you look at the person and it's, it's in some ways very justifiable. Um, you know, they've, in light of all the other great things that they've done currently and in the past, it's kind of hard to, you know, punish them in some way. And, and I will say the best ones, have actually come in and submitted their resignations. So I've had people that have come in that have screwed up and said like, you know, if you want to fire me, I could totally understand because that should never have happened. Ever. So anyway, but you know, we could have another whole podcast. There's several of these stories. <laughs> so, so the, the resignation, when somebody offers that, I've got an idea of how I would interpret that. What, what is so important about, that to you because it's it's kind of taking me down at like a, a thought about values and um i don't i don't want to predispose your answer but no it's, it's, it's a personal integrity thing i mean i really yeah. respect somebody that's that professional that comes in and says you know i know i should never have done that i mean part of me probably knew it at the time that was the wrong thing to do 
but it just you know seemed convenient or speeding expedient at the time and so i i did something that i i knew was wrong so we all do that but it, you know some have more consequences than others yeah, I remember hearing something from, uh, I'll just say Henry Ford, because I know it, it goes back a long time, but he's like, why would I fire somebody that cost me $100,000? Because now they have a $100,000 education, and I know that mistake will never be made again. Right, right, that's true. Yeah, I mean, exactly right. You can use that as a, as a teaching moment for the rest of the staff as well. Um, and usually there's some form of reprimand. And it can it can vary all the way from, kind of a letter in your HR file, you know, kind of like a, a written reprimand of sorts. Um, I've seen situations in which maybe uh, uh, your bonus eligibility for the year is is trimmed. So I've never seen it eliminated, but, you know, or the, when the merit pool comes up for some kind of annual base pay increase, um, you know, perhaps if the, well, whatever, there's some, there's some adjustment that's made there to kind of reflect um, what happened. But and I've had it happen to me. Um, we, I had a situation once where we had some software that was being used for order processing, and there was an, an error that was not caught in one of the enhancements uh, that actually caused us to slip orders at the end of the quarter. Uh, and they were fairly substantial orders. And the CEO rightly thought, you know, really kind of top to bottom, the whole chain of command, right down to the testing organization in IT, he wanted to make sure there was a financial consequence to this just to send the message that uh, you know this is just not acceptable just you know, should have done a better job yeah well it's tough as a, as a former software engineer myself like these things these solutions are somewhat invented you know, on the fly and everybody's best effort to try to test them and make sure every uh, instance is accounted for it's it's tough. And then when the system gets tested beyond its capacity or beyond, um, you know, the, the, the reasonable expectations, you know, things can happen. So it's, uh, I'm surprised any of this stuff works to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> Another reflection that I, I think might be in the book. Um, so I've had situations where when you do a postmortem on some of these, you know, larger, more visible screw ups, and you're presenting to the CEO or the COO or CFO. I'm just kind of making this up hypothetically, you know, so there's like, there's like 10 steps, right. That led to the outage or, um, you know, the failure or whatever it was. And by the time you get to like step five, you know, now this is all 2020 hindsight, right. You're like piecing us back together, but right. when you're explaining to them, can we have, like it's so obvious that this <laughs> that that's going to blow up. You know, it's like by step five out of ten, it's like it's, they look at you like you couldn't catch this. You know, <laughs> why, why do I? Why have I hired you? Like by five, it's obvious we're going to be in trouble. By seven, you know, we're having a heart attack. You know, <laughs> by, by nine, like the patient's almost dead, and nobody did anything. Like none of this was caught along the way. Like I thought that we were better than this, and so. Um, it is, it's very humbling. It's very humbling. Yeah. <laughs> That's all. I'm agreeing with you. In a long-winded way, I'm agreeing with you that, yes, it's amazing. Some days it's all this stuff actually works the way it's supposed to. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think the book, uh, I have never been, nor will I ever be in a position of IT leadership. But as I was reading through it, 
uh, as a salesperson in the IT space, this has been incredibly valuable to help me understand the perspective of the person on the other side of the the desk or the table. And the the one thing that struck me on when you're talking about the vendors is as a IT leader, understanding how the companies you're working with are incentivized. And I thought that was incredibly powerful and insightful for someone that's scratching a, a huge PO for these things, whether it's hardware, software, or consulting to understand the financial motivation on the other side, not simply just the the technical solution perspective, but how are you getting paid on this? And where, where did it, was that a, a manila folder <laughs> item as well? I learned that. No, 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 because I, you know, truthfully, probably wouldn't, I have a fair amount of knowledge about that, but that's not the kind of thing that you necessarily write about in any great detail, but, but, um, yeah, you do learn over time that there's always, well, you know, there's, there's spiffs, there's special incentive programs that are activated at different points during the fiscal year. Well, hey, one that's a very public example is, uh, you know, Microsoft, when they had the chain of command and Saudi took over, it was all about cloud and Azure. You know, I mean, it was sure they still got the office products on the desktop and, and everything, but their whole incentive system was basically transformed or transmogrified into things that would you know, generate more revenue out of Azure over time. So that's, I mean, that's a classic example. And if you go back in time, there was a time uh, with the, in the telco world, the telecom world, you know, the trunk lines um, became commoditized. And so the vendors like Verizon and AT&T, um, the, their sales guys used to get comped on managed service. So what they wanted to do was like turn over the management of your network to them. Um, and that's where they're, their bigger margins were. And so they were compensated differently for managed service um, activities than they were for just the, the trunk line services. Um, so, you know, ha- this all happens in different organizations and, and even professional services, you know, some sales guys, uh, they might get comped on a new logo differently than a renewal on an existing logo, or they may or may not get comped on um, professional services. And if they don't, you know, a lot of times say the buyer has got, million dollars to spend well the vendor may know that this is not the easiest thing in the world to implement so if you got a million to spend why don't you start with like you know six hundred thousand licenses and four hundred thousand in professional services but if that's really not gonna you know benefit directly this the sales rep then the sales rep's gonna tell you oh this thing you know plug and play i spend about nine hundred thousand on on the subscriptions and then about a hundred thousand to actually We'll just be in and out on our PS guys, you know, two weeks. So um, you have to really understand what's going on on the other side to kind of make it a win-win for everybody involved, you know. And I, you know, and I think the other lesson there for the vendors is, you know, you might have a, a financial victory for that one quarter, but if you really want to have a longer-term relationship and you want them coming back for more, you know, that kind of honesty and transparency is going to you know, build a relationship that'll pay multiple dividends in the future. Yeah. And that's the, the title of that um, particular section in the book is relationship buying versus relationship selling. <clears throat> and you're right. There's, there's people that I've, that are friends of mine that are very, very good on the transactional side. And that's just not how I want to do my day-to-day business. I like, this podcast and and that my job has allowed me to just meet interesting people 
And I'm experienced enough to understand that you're probably not sitting around as a CEO, just looking out the window going, man, I wish somebody would just walk in and sell me some stuff and fix all my problems. Like it's part of a, I would tell my sales teams that it's like a relationship and you start with saying hello, you have a cup of coffee, you go to lunch and then maybe you go out to a movie. I was like, why should a professional relationship operate any differently? And there's expectations on how people should behave and you know, like the, the honesty and the transparency. And I have told people this a lot that if I had to choose between your trust or your business, if that was the coin flip I have to make, I would, I would take your trust because you know, your business, I could cash that check one time and you're never inviting me back. Yeah. So, you know, when I've, I've coached sales guys in many different capacities in the past. And so, you know, um, one thing that most vendors are very prone to do if uh, the, the buyer or the prospect ask a, a, function, a question about functionality, like, you know, can your tool do this? The answer 9,999 times out of 10,000 is yes. And I, and I told, I've told sales guys, you know, if you just took a deep breath and like paused for about two seconds, that the, it'd be more credible, you know, it would be less of a knee jerk, you know, mindless knee jerk thing. Well, of course, our, our tool does everything. <laughs> like, of course it does. <laughs> Whatever, but like, so just take a pause, just like take a deep breath for two to three seconds and act like you've reflected on this, you know, so that it at least has the, the appearance of credibility. <laughs> <laughs> Whether you can get to the question or not. <laughs> there are some very predictable behaviors that you run into. Yeah. And at some point, just given experience, you've pattern matched and you've seen it all before. It doesn't matter what you're talking about, but it's like, I know where this is going. Right. 15 minutes ago, right? <laughs> and, and you know, the other thing, and not to not to in any way demean or denigrate um, sales function, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a very hard thing to do and it takes a great deal of sophistication. But I tell them, think about like when you go in a restaurant, right? So if you go in a restaurant with this menu and you ask the waiter or waitress, like, you know, what's good here? Or how would you compare this to that or whatever? And if all you get is all the time, like everything's good. Everything is good. Everything's the greatest. You can't go wrong, whatever. And I'm sure that's true in some restaurants. But you know, the that's not very helpful as a buyer. So, you know, if you've got multiple products or SKUs that you're selling and um, you know, talking about their limitations or how they stack up against competitors in some kind of a meaningful way, um, you know, that again, I think goes back to the point you made before about the longer term relationship. You, you become much more credible in the eyes of the buyer. Yeah, because I think it's just realistic that things are not perfect and it's, yeah, understanding the limitations and in some ways protecting the customer at the restaurant or protecting the, the CIO CTO at a, at an organization and just, yeah. you know, cause I've been on the flip side of that where the, the engineering team gets squished and it's been, you know, 3am on a Thursday when I want to be home sleeping, but we have to get this deadline and get the, the code in and that's no fun for anybody. Right. Right. Exactly right. The, the other uh, title that leapt out in chapter seven, I think it was, was um, objective reality, <laughs> the search for objective reality. And uh, I, I loved that. And uh, I wanted you to expand on that particular topic as well and what that means within an organization. So, you know, like every every form of human endeavor you know, develops kind of a um, reinforcing belief system just to survive, right? And so 
you may be in a, a IT group that thinks it's the wizards of the universe when it comes to data center operations, or you know, is like at the um, cutting edge of uh, implementing DevOps or administering SaaS applications. You pick your poison, and your teams will keep producing metrics and information that reinforce those belief systems. And, and there's some benefit to that. Um, you know, there's an element of esprit de corps and, and morale. But, but as a leader, you know, you really need to get outside your own organization and, you know, figure out, you know, are we really like, you know, top quartile when it comes to hybrid cloud management or, you know, what are the things do we have to learn? Um, and, and so you really need to exercise the power of your position to reach out in, in a leadership role. And, and I, you know, you don't have to be a CIO. You could be a director, a senior manager. Hell, you could be like the, the tech lead on the leader of the workday support team. You know, go find a peer at some other company and, you know, go have lunch with them. Or if you're thinking of implementing the comp module in workday, you know, go find another company that just, just recently did it or has been using it for two years, you know, and kind of, you know, get some advice and swap some best practices and, you know, kind of get yourself grounded in the reality of, Know, the bigger world than just um, what's going on inside of your own company. So it's just too, it's, it's funny, you know, especially the larger company, I'm sorry, the larger a company becomes, there's almost like this black hole phenomena. You know, there's like a gravitational force and pretty soon all you're doing with your whole day is going to conference rooms and responding to emails that are all like internal, internally focused, you know, on internal business. This is especially true in large IT organizations. You know, you could, you could spend all day long in a conference room and your teams would come in with PowerPoint presentations and, you know, you'd give some advice or a little bit of coaching or tell them they've done a great job and, you know, go home at the end of the day and you know, do that for 200 consecutive work days and, and kind of start to believe in yourself, you know, in, in a misfounded way, you know, in a, in a possibly erroneous kind of way that, that, uh, you're doing the best job you possibly can. So long story short, there's a lot of learnings that can be brought into an organization. All too often people try to, you know, invent that knowledge themselves and then develop these, these internally reinforcing belief systems. And so you need kind of a healthy dose of objective reality from time to time. And just a good, you know, a good illustration of that is, and I'm sure you've seen this as many times as I have, there'll be some IT shops that are just humming right along and seem to be fine, et cetera. And then for one reason or another, the CIO leaves and this new person comes in, some man or some woman, and they blow the place up. And, and you know, they all thought that, you know, you can never put a production system in the cloud. Well, guess what? Within one year of the new person, a third of the production systems are in the cloud. Or we could never move off Microsoft Dynamics. And well, guess what? Six months later, Salesforce has, you know, been implemented and everybody's off Dynamics. And all these things that you had convinced yourself were good enough, didn't need to be changed, um, were actually good, you know, or were even best in class in some ways. Um, certainly we're not in, this, in the eyes of the, this new kind of, you know, fresh person. And so you, you always, it's not uncommon to see a new CIO really make you know, very significant changes in internal operational practices and, you know, technologies that are being used in the company. Yeah, and I've been in situations to go back to the the point you made about being in conference rooms where it's all of a sudden Thursday afternoon and I'm like, what did I do all week? Like, I know I showed up and I did stuff, but just 
like I didn't really work on anything. And um, yeah, I've also seen it too, where it's somebody bringing in a different knowledge base, you know, like going into the cloud in six months. It's <clears throat> just because it hasn't been done here doesn't mean it's impossible. And so it's just the, not necessarily belief, it's just perspective and experience. And yeah, I think, I think organizations tend to get um, lethargic under their own weight and <laughs> things just keep kind of lumbering along. And it's like, are we doing the right thing at the right time to help the business or help ourselves or help the customer? And it, yeah, when you're, when you're digging in the foxhole, it's kind of hard to poke your head around and, <laughs> and see if you're digging in the right direction. Or even, or even you should be digging. Yeah. Well, you know, it's something I try not to think too much about because it's too scary. Um, but a lot of times, I think if the business executives really knew, you know, about a lot of the work that's performed at the request of their own team, they would be dumbfounded. I mean, some of the, you know, one of our, our first lines of defense or engagement with a lot of the functional groups are our business systems analysts. And, you know, if you look at sort of the power base or the politics of the relationship that a BSA has with somebody in the business, the business rep kind of has the upper hand because they can always um, play the domain knowledge card, you know, like, mm. right. So I mean, a classic example would be, well, here's an enhancement that we need to make to the order management system because, you know, whenever we have to build bank of America, you know, and the moon is in Aquarius. We have to like generate four invoices that go through the North Pole and you know land in twelve continents, you know, simultaneously. So that's a requirement. So the BSA is sitting there thinking, "Gee, really? Like, <laughs> a is that really a requirement? And like, and B, like, do I just do that thing manually because that really sounds, you know, no, 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 no. That's like really important to us because they're one of our biggest customers. So we've got to absolutely, you know, we have to go up and do that. So my point being is, you know, some of the the bosses on the business side look at what their teams are asking us to do. They'd say, well, but you know, that's not very strategic or is, that's not really, I don't know we should be spending. And they might say, maybe there's too many people in IT, you know, if you can find the time to do that, then we've got too many people, but um, it's, it's, it's scary to think about, you know, the time and effort that goes into responding to such a broad spectrum of, requests and demands that we get from the business and really how strategic it is you know, at the end of the day. Is it tough being a, an IT executive and knowing, um, in this example, maybe somebody that's come up as an engineer that has you know, used these, these products and things and worked their way up. Is it a difficult thing to disconnect the detail and look at it from the top level perspective? Was that something that you had to learn how to do as you have advanced in your career is like turning off what, you know, maybe shutting off information streams that would might, might be a better way to describe it. Yeah. So I think everybody's technical skills atrophy over time. It just takes some people longer to realize that it's happening. <laughs> um, and you know, I counsel people in leadership roles or somebody's, you know, if I go on a job interview and say like, what, they'll say like, what do you think the CIO role is all about? Like what, what are the qualifications of a successful CIO? And so I kind of think of it in three dimensions. And so one is really managing the politics of the organization, right? Developing the relationships with the other executives to kind of really understand what the challenges and opportunities are in the business. 
um, and being able to translate that into the IT world. So that's number one, is, is those managing those relationships. And two is, you know, around technical innovation. But, you know, to your point about being an individual contributor, I mean, innovation is no longer having your hands on a keyboard, but, you know, bring some of that objective reality into the organization, realizing, hey, maybe there's some new tools that have emerged in the marketplace that can do stuff better, faster, cheaper than our homegrown systems or, you know, whatever. And so you're not going to, well, I would never go out and, you know, fall in love with some kind of product or tool and bring it back and demand that the, the staff implement it. But I could get intrigued and I could come back and say, let's go take a hard look at something. Um, or I, I talked to another CIO who has gotten great, great results from something new or different. It doesn't have to be a, always like a software product. It could be a new process, like a DevOps process or some internal um, operational process, security process. And that's the second dimension is innovation. And then the third is around internal leadership of your own team. Is, you know, sometimes you can get out a little bit too far in front of your own, your own team. And it is hard when you come into an organization with hundreds of people. Um, you know, typically, I'm gonna speak from experience here. I always think, you know, when I land in, in a new shop, there's 20% there's of the people that you inherit who are kind of anarchists. And so they love change for change's sake. You know, they think, oh, the new guy's here, this is great. And, you know, finally, all this kind of crazy old fashioned way of doing things, it's, he's, he's gonna help us like get over the hump. So whatever, either they, they come to you with their ideas or they just sort of sign up for the crusade because they're excited that there's some fresh blood on the organization. So that's at one end of the spectrum. Then mm -hmm. there's, there's the other end of the spectrum. There's about 20% of the people who think, <laughs> We'll see how long this guy lasts because I'm not, I'm not, my heart's not, I don't believe in any of the stuff that, that he's spouting up there at all. No, we're not going to go to the cloud. No, we're not going to build out an InfoSec team. You know, no, we're not going to like start writing mobile apps because none of our customers want to use the mobile app. Um, and then, then you have like the fence sitters in the middle, the 60% that are in the middle. And, you know, that's where you have to devote some time and energy to kind of get them off the fence and get them excited about where you're trying to take the organization. So those are three dimensions, you know, the relationships with the execs, thinking about innovation opportunities in the organization and the um, leadership of the own, your own team. And I want to come back to innovation for a second. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because, you know, that's a, I tell people, that's kind of like a planetary alignment phenomenon. And what I mean by that is you can see a lot of innovation opportunities, but to really make it happen, you typically need to have a, a temporary alignment of you know, some kind of a business need and funding availability and a willing business partner and, you know, skills on your own team. And if you can put, you know, so it'd be like the mobile app that I just referred to. Like if you can get that all lined up, there'll be a window of opportunity. And my experience is those windows open and close. So, you know, if you're at the right point in time and there's some extra uh, cash lying around, maybe in the quarter and, you know, somebody has got religion around or enthusiasm around this kind of mobile, cool mobile app idea that you've come up with. And, you know, you've, I don't know, it, anyway, if all the ingredients kind of fall together in place at the right time, you develop kind of a sixth sense of it's time to, to strike, you know, while it's, uh, what's that phrase, strike while the iron is hot, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and, and then if you kind of pussyfoot around or somebody says, oh, that's a good idea, but like, let's wait for the next, next budget cycle. It's only six months away. We'll kind of do that next year. You know, you kind of wake up and go, whatever happened to that good idea? Gee, I don't know. Like that business guy 
he's off on some kind of new initiative now, right? And um, uh, I just don't have all the piece parts in place at the same time. So, so there'll always be more innovation opportunities than you can really execute. And the trick is to find the alignment, you know, and then be very aggressive when that window is available to you. <clears throat> so I would say that the disposition of people would be to perhaps attack it uh, and you know, and all things being equal, but what's the skill set to recognize when it, it looks good, it feels good, but there's just something that, you know, doesn't satisfy the, the time, money, or motivation. How does one effectively walk away from something that looks like a really good idea and I guess um, battle test it for lack of a better term ahead of time to make sure it really is going to satisfy that? Yeah. Um, well, that's, I'm not sure there's a real general answer to that. I mean, one, one consideration would be financial. So if to really get to the finish line, I'm making this note, let's say it's a $3 million project and you can produce some tangible results with an initial investment of maybe 750 K. Um, you want to make sure everybody knows that you're on this journey to spend the $3 million, that that's a possibility, right? You don't know enough about the project to be able to definitively say it's going to be 3 million. Maybe, maybe it's, you, you know, you think it's going to be 2.5 to four. Um, but you want to get people bought in early on that that's kind of the scale of what we're talking about here or some, we're going to do something new, but that has staffing implications. And so if you like this idea, I'm going to need six more people, you know, in this particular function to support this thing going forward. So I think sometimes when I've been in organizations, it's so tough to get new things started. We all kind of fool ourselves that, you know, see that little first initial project for 750, if we could just get that done, then they'll see what the benefit is. And then we'll kind of go back and, and it'll get bigger and better over time. But the whole goal is not to scare them and let's kind of start real small. I think that's kind of a such if you can't get people to at least kind of nod their head and realize where this thing is headed long term, you know, I think that's a big mistake. Yeah, a lot of frustration if that's not there. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, as you were describing the 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 things that go into success, you know, it, it I I didn't serve in the military, but I've read enough to at least be familiar with some of the operating principles and in your time in the air force, did that really influence how you look at things from that perspective? And I'm hearing strategic and tactical, uh, concepts in there. Does, did that influence how you approach an IT organization? I, not, not a whole lot. <laughs> well, so I didn't have direct combat experience. Um, I, Probably, you know, what I did learn from the military was how to how to thrive in a bureaucracy, and, mm. <laughs> and that actually has come in handy in working for you know some pretty large Fortune three hundred type companies. So, uh, yeah, I probably learned more about you know, how to uh, yeah how to navigate some pretty convoluted processes, and, and was able to come to terms with some of the ways some large corporations work more than anything else. <laughs> I had I had a guest that served uh, in the army, and he was talking about that being like the largest HR organization in the world. And when he framed it that way, I was like, 
Yeah. You know, I bet that it's, <laughs> if not, it's pretty close, right? Just with all the, the, the ins and outs and bureaucracy and, you know, you still have to accomplish the mission regardless of, you know, the efficiency or inefficiencies of, of the organization. Yep. Yep. And you really, you know, you, well, it's like the, in the business world. I mean, I think you end up with people that wouldn't be your first choice in a lot of cases. Um, and the other thing that's, that's tough. So I've been in organizations that sell software products into the, into the military or into the government, but particularly in the military, you know, most of the leaders that are the, in the buying role, um, they rotate people through those more senior positions every two years. And so if you're bringing in some brand new, you know, blockchain solution to do X, Y, Z, you know, you maximally you've got two years to educate and motivate the buyer. You know, usually they're somewhere in the, the middle of that two-year period. And so you, the clock is ticking. And if you can't move them to a decision, then you're going to have to start all over again with the next person that shows up. Right. Scary. <laughs> Uh, like over the course of your, uh, career, uh, 7X CEO, was there a role that was the biggest challenge yet biggest reward? And I, I don't like asking what was your favorite role, but one that perhaps just tested you, um, beyond what you thought was capable. So I'm keep me moving here because I, this could, this could go on for a while, but, but I, I do reflect on the fact that, so I've landed in some roles where after the first couple of weeks, you know, I kind of look around and, and I think to myself, I know exactly what's wrong. Like I, I just intuitively, I have the experience, you know, knowledge and skills and I can look around. I, I know what this organization needs. I know what the plan should be. So that's good. Um, now still in any new company, you're going to learn how the business operates. I've never kind of landed, you know, even the companies in the same industries can operate quite differently internally. So, so you're always going to learn about the business model, but just in terms of that T function, kind of look around, you can see what's broken. And again, you have, like we talked about before, now you're the fresh set of eyes and you can see, Hey, I know like our service desk, we could run a much better service desk than our operation that we have here today. Cause I've seen it in other places. I've also landed in other, other jobs where I've looked around and I thought, why did they hire me? Like, why, how did they ever think I was going to be able to help you? Hey, <laughs> I'm feeling a little overwhelmed, you know, at this whole thing. And of course, that's, that's also, that's even a more tremendous learning experience. Um, so, so, and when you say like, as one is the most rewarding, you know, really every company has a set of challenges and this isn't a fashionable thing to talk about, but I've been in companies where the number one job was cost cutting. and you know, I was proud of the fact that in some companies I had reduced IT expenses by 30% because that was what the business needed. Um, that was what the number one priority was at the time. Uh, been in other companies where we did some pretty pioneering things at e-commerce back in the late 2000s, about 2007 kind of time frame. And uh, one of the most rewarding experiences was the five years that I spent at BMC Software. Because as you know, um, BMC sells products into the IT community to, um, to improve the efficiency of internal IT operations. And so we were able to, you know, become kind of a, um, a customer zero. We tested a lot of um, enhancements and new products that were coming out. And we would also get involved in supporting our sales guys. You know, we would chat with prospective customers and talk about some of the benefits that we did manage to 
achieve through these grown products. And so it was, you know, really rewarding to be on, to be associated with the revenue generating side of the organization and not just be confined to you know, the proverbial cost center. Right? So, so, but every job has its own kind of reward. Um, I, it's hard to say like one, one more than the mother. Sure. Well, I just, I really enjoy the book and I know we're coming up on our uh, <clears throat> allotted time, but you know, I think to, to pigeonhole this as like an IT book would be doing it a huge disservice. And uh, as I was just preparing for this conversation, like you know, even the first, uh, like even chapter two, you know, get them to like you like this book. I, I see this as a business book, you know, for salespeople, for IT people, for anybody that's just like in an organization. And I'm actually, when I see my, uh, my, see my son tonight, he's going to be home from college. I'm going to put this in his hand with the promise that he has to give it back because it, because <laughs> it lives on my desk and I just flip through a chapter each morning because it's, it's a guide that touches like so many other things. And as him, as he prepares to graduate this spring and he's looking at a, a role, like I wish somebody had handed me something, this level of detail, kind of like an operating system on how to, you know, um, you know, you have a chapter in here, common mistakes in business relationship management. Like I didn't know until like five, six, seven years into my career that I, oh, I'm supposed to go talk to the marketing team. I'm supposed to go talk to the, you know, IT team as an engineer. And it's like, my life would have been so much easier. So, I mean, while it, it's uh, branded as IT management, like I just see it as just a wonderful operating system that crosses you know, anybody that works anywhere should read this and take a look at it. And I'm, I'm happy that I stumbled across it in my boss's office. So I appreciate, you know, I really appreciate the, the words of um, endorsement. I, if we go back to the beginning of this conversation, I really look back at the writing of the book as an exercise in personal therapy um, more than anything else. And of course, everybody, informed me and counseled me that, you know, this would not be a money-making venture. You know, you don't make money on these kind of books at all. So, and I, so I didn't expect it to be financially a big deal. So the real reward, but it's turned out to be incredibly rewarding just in, just in talking to people like you, I mean, I'll have people reach out on LinkedIn or come up to me at conferences. I've gone to some conferences and people have brought, you know, a hard copy of the book and come up to me after I've, I've spoken or whatever. And, you know, they want they want the book autographed out of nowhere. And occasionally, I, I stumble across university professors that have purchased copies, and they have, you know, their whole class every year read the book, or management teams that have used it in offsite meetings and things. And so that part has been very rewarding. And so I'm going to end on, on a, uh, kind of a, a promotional note, which is uh, there's a there's a bit of a sequel that's going to come out after the first of the year. Excellent. And, uh, yeah, the next version is called Truth from the Valley. And so what I've tried to do in the second book is look around at some of the IT management practices that occur here in the Bay Area startup community. And if, if you can convince yourself that, you know, we're sort of a canary environment for where the world is headed long term, I talk about some of these, these both people management and operational internal practices and the way we think about technology and hopefully people are outside the Bay Area bubble can you know, benefit from some of the experiences that we've had here. So stay tuned and look for that after the first of the year. 
Awesome. I, I will definitely pick up a copy of that because you know, everything from the HBO show Silicon Valley to Apple to all those, you know, it, I'm sure it gets glamorized and romanticized and to, uh, again, have the same perspective from you being on the inside would be uh, entertaining and educational as well. So good. So Mark, thank you so much. You know, I know this has been a couple, um, hits and misses trying to get this scheduled, but it's definitely, I appreciate you sticking with me. And this has been a, a great conversation. Like I said, I, I just really enjoyed the book and, um, where can people uh, reach out to you and find you? I'll put links to all this on the, on the LinkedIn page when I post the episode, but where's the best place to LinkedIn? LinkedIn's probably the best place. Okay. Yeah, LinkedIn. Awesome. Okay. Well, again, uh, Mark Settle, author of Truth from the Trenches, a practical guide to the art of uh, IT management, but to me, it's more of a, a life operating manual. Um, Thanks a lot. This has been great. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Yeah. Hold on one second. I'll hit uh, stop and we can chat just for a second. Thanks.